Welcome to Bank Invest Insights. My name is Brett Chappell, and with me today is Christian Halon. Uh, I'm a senior portfolio manager at Bank Invest uh, on the Emerging Market Corporate Debt Team. And today we're going to be discussing a uh, interesting and relatively new member of our strategy group, and that would be the Emerging Markets Short Duration Strategy. And uh, I think, you know, might be asking, why is it so interesting? Have you been seeing good inflows in that recently? Thank you, Brett. Well, we have, actually. We uh, recently have seen inflows coming into this, well, I would say, into emerging market debt in general, mm-hmm. but in particular, this short duration strategy. Uh, so it does appeal to quite a few investors out there, which is uh, why we thought it was interesting to speak about it today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that your your emerging markets debt strategy, and it's you know generally has a long and successful track record. But do you actually believe that this strategy for short duration will be able to replicate that longevity, or is it just a flash in the pan due to the current interest rate environment? I mean, look. In other words, will it also perform across different market cycles, particularly in volatile economic conditions. I think that's a very good question, Brett. Um, I mean, I think perhaps I'd like to take a step back uh, before answering the question and, and talk about how we got here in the first place. Please do, yeah. So, so, so really, we, we have more than 20 years of experience investing into emerging market debt. And um, the first product we launched uh, back in 2001 was a combination of corporate and sovereign uh, debt from, from emerging market issuers. Um, and this strategy was really about generating stable excess returns while um, mitigating uh, drawdowns or downside risks. Mm-hmm. So I think this equates uh, or suits pretty well to, to, to this short duration strategy as that's effectively what we do in order to sort of optimize the information ratio here. So this is what we're aiming at. And I guess for the old strategy, we always appreciated uh, the short duration bucket of the universe, as this uh, was exactly one of the things which could generate the stable uh, excess returns uh, uh, we have uh, wanted to deliver. And uh, it wasn't until, say, the last three to four years ago that the market had broadened sufficiently in order for us to actually create a diversified credit portfolio within emerging market issuers so that we could launch the product. Um, And over the past years, uh, what we have seen is that the investment strategy that we pursue has actually been uh, fairly healthy and robust relative to this sub-segment. I think also this is supported by academic and empirical research, which shows that the short uh, credit component uh, in the U.S. corporate debt market has delivered uh, outsized uh, sharp ratios historically. Mm. And um, in fact, if we look back to the late 70s up until today, I think the U.S. US corporate uh, credit market uh, only had two years of negative uh, returns, and that was after the uh, great financial crisis in 2008, yeah. and then uh, again in 2022 when we saw interest rates uh, uh, rising fastly from a very low level, uh, where the carry essentially couldn't offset this uh, rate rise. So yes, uh, coming back to your question, we do see the strategy as uh, delivering uh, stable returns uh, across most uh, investment environments. Thank you very much. I think one of the questions that I know when I'm speaking to people is uh, they're concerned about ratings and, you know, this is a hard currency uh, fund, correct? Now, I mean, when the rating-wise, how does that pan out on the short-dated bond comparison to your longer-dated? That's a good question. So, I mean, when, when we 
talk about emerging market corporate debt or emerging market debt in general, um, I think it's uh, fairly important to distinguish between uh, hard currency and local currency. And, and the strategy that we pursue here is only for hard currency bonds, uh, be it okay. uh, predominantly dollars, as, as we do, but also in, in euros, uh, Swissies, or uh, perhaps even sterling, if we can call that a hard currency. Um, so, but what we, we look at uh, rating-wise, uh, when we look at the broader universe, uh, we would say that the universe is probably 60% uh, investment grade and 40% and high yield, uh, sort of in, in, in broad terms. Going down to the sub-spectrum of um, short duration, uh, our philosophy is that we flip it a bit so that we probably have uh, the other way around and invest into 60% high yield and about uh, 30 to 40% investment grade. This doesn't deviate too much from our broader strategies, but perhaps has a little bit more high yield in it. Are these more crossover type uh, high yield? Or are you going down to, to triple C's or how does that work? So that's a good question again. I mean, I think broadly speaking, when we look at our investment philosophy, uh, we tend to avoid the riskiest credits, so being the triple C's and, and below, but also the lowest credit uh, uh, bonds, so the double uh, A's and above. Um, this, this also uh, equates for this strategy, so the bulk of the exposure is with the double B's mm. and uh, to some extent the triple B's. Um, in fact, I think in the strategy there's only about 6 to 7% with a single B uh, rating or below. Perfect. Now, one of the things that um, is also very interesting whenever we speak to investors is how you do the risk factor mapping. And uh, for us, how is this different from what you currently have in uh, the emerging market strategy? Well, I mean, I think that's a relevant question. And uh, broadly speaking, it's not very different from, from the other strategies that we have. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of overlap in, in this particular mm -hmm. strategy with the broader strategies that, that we pursue as well. So... Uh, generically, um, what we have done over the years uh, is a combination of top-down uh, risk assessment and uh, bottom-up credit uh, selection, and, and this pretty much goes uh, in, in this strategy as well. So for us, uh, one of the key risk factors uh, is uh, the macro risks or the country risks mm -hmm. which we assess. Um, but it's, it's also about knowing whom you lend to. So effectively, Doing your governance, uh, uh, doing your uh, qualitative analysis, uh, we primarily invest into industry leaders or, or uh, issuers who are positioned at the low end of the cost curve. Uh, this sort of protects them in, in, in times where, where uh, the going gets uh, uh, tough. So, so that's why for, for this particular strategy, I guess uh, the ability to be able to refinance in the market is very important. But it's also mm -hmm. important to look at alternative ways of uh, achieving financing in case that the market is actually, or the bond market is uh, temporarily shot. So, so this is another uh, uh, risk factor which we uh, prioritize a lot in, in, in this respect. But how do, you, how do you avoid, you know, in certain cases, capital loss in this strategy? Um, again, the, given the short nature of, of, of the strategy, uh, capital loss is uh, clearly the, uh, the, the 
poisoning from uh, Voldemort, right? I mean, that's <laughs> something that we can't get rid of uh, yeah. if that happens and we can't sort of recoup it. So um, being proactive on the cell discipline, uh, if something goes against what we had anticipated, it's about cutting the exposure uh, at, at, a, uh, at an early pace. But it's also about uh, knowing, um, as, as I mentioned, knowing whom you lent to, what has the... Uh, past behavior been like with that creditor? Is that uh, something that we should uh, fear, that they would repeat uh, sort of the sins of the past? Or is it um, uh, a sound balance sheet with a healthy and stable cash flow generation? In these uh, cases, they would most often be able to either tap uh, the bond markets or uh, pursue local uh, banking financing, or even in cases where we invest into um, government-related entities, the government might have a strategic interest in, in supporting that uh, franchise. So, so that's also uh, an important characteristic. That's a, that's a very valid point. And you, you mentioned uh, you know, the sovereign support to this. What about the country and sector exposures? I mean, can you discuss the current exposures you have in the short duration fund and the rationale behind these choices? I mean, we know next year, 2024, is a really big election year. So how do you adjust for that tail risk with such a shorter investment horizon? Well, that's a good question again. Um, so 2024 is a big election year, and I think it's about uh, some estimate that two-thirds of the world's GDP is, is up for elections uh, in uh, during 2024. I mean, the uh, interesting part is that perhaps the most uh, market-relevant election uh, next year is the one in, in the U.S., not necessarily in, in, in EM. Um, so the way we typically approach uh, election risks uh, is that we have a fairly cautious approach. Um, we, uh, we know from experience that uh, uh, risk premia often spike two to three months before elections mm -hmm. on, on the fear of what might happen. Uh, I think a good example of this, uh, again, was what happened uh, uh, in Turkey uh, last year or oh, this year, actually earlier this year, uh, where um, uh, most market participants feared uh, the actual outcome of the election, but whereas what actually happened with the um, uh, um, elected parliament and, and president, that they actually uh, did all the things that the markets hoped for. So it actually turned out to be an opportunity, not necessarily a risk. So... Uh, the way we look at it is that if we do have uh, uh, countries where there's an election uh, and which are prone to sort of fairly radical outcomes and, and those countries have a fairly weak starting point, uh, then we would be fairly cautious and, and uh, perhaps uh, uh, mitigate uh, exposures there. Or at least be very cognizant about what kind of exposures we take, because if it's a domestic-oriented business, it might be much more prone to currency weakness compared to, say, uh, an exporter of uh, commodities or whatever, then that they might not be as hardly hit by uh, sort of a, an outcome which, which the market would not hope for. So in taking this into account, where would you see that you might see risks on the horizon uh, for next year? So I believe South Africa is one of the places where we could see risks sort of uh, surfacing next year. I was uh, recently uh, on a trip to South Africa, and uh, one of my takeaways there was that uh, what we've seen uh, pretty much since the end of the apartheid regime uh, is that the ANC has been ruling uh, the country for uh, for better or worse uh, over the years. Um, but that uh, sort of majority rule uh, is coming to an end now. And in a system in South Africa, which is fairly fragmented and is becoming increasingly uh, so fragmented, uh, 
we could see uh, a relatively weak ANC uh, leading in a fragile uh, government coalition, yeah. or perhaps even worse case, that it's supported by the economic freedom fighters, which would be an absolute disaster uh, for the country. And, and I think uh, uh, that's a tail risk, which is not appreciated by the market. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. I think one of the, the questions I've been thinking about here is that, you know, as you have the long strategy, uh, which has been around for years, how do you leverage off your relationships, whether it's syndicate desk, brokers, whatever, to ensure that you're not getting the runaround in terms of uh, secondary pricing? Well, that's, uh, that's a good and very important question for the strategy. I mean, given the short nature of, of the investments that we do, uh, getting uh, assets at the right prices is, is a key uh, ingredient for, for generating alpha here. And this is uh, one of the aspects uh, where, given we have uh, broader strategies which pursue um, the uh, uh, benchmark uh, durations, I mean, in fact, that's, this is a side note, but all of our strategies tend to be duration neutral. So as uh, bonds mat uh, either mature or become seasoned and, and the duration is declining for, for these strategies, they have a need in order to replace these with longer dated securities. Mm -hmm. Um, and this means that uh, there's a mutual interest from the short duration strategy to the broader strategies that the short duration strategy has a continuous need to acquire new assets, whereas the broader strategies have a, an ongoing uh, need to actually reduce some of the short dated papers as they uh, get out of the benchmark or just uh, need to uh, sort of extend their duration strategies in, in, in general. So this means that... Uh, these two strategies can actually meet at, at mid prices uh, and, and we can execute uh, on for the uh, greater good of, of both uh, parties uh, at an arm's length uh, basis clearly. So uh, we need to be mindful of the integrity here. It's not that we are running over uh, either side uh, on, on this. So, I mean, if you, you're, you're talking here about internal trades? That's correct. That's, those are the uh, internal trades. So that's the bulk of the uh, uh, sort of asset sourcing in, in, a, uh, in a normal market. But on top of that, uh, given our counterparts are aware and, and know about this uh, short duration need that we have and, and uh, sort of continuous demand for, for, for bonds in, in the short end of the, uh, the curve, uh, they often come to us and uh, sort of propose uh, whatever uh, offers they might have, which they know fit our criteria and which uh, might be of interest uh, to us. Now, you mentioned that um, you hold at arm's length when you do these, because this is an important point. The SEC, in respect to how it's been in Europe, have been very late coming in to develop for the dollar for the internal trades because of conflicts of interest. And in this situation, you must have practice that's been cleared by compliance and all this, but it's very beneficial. Are there certain things that you have to do when you execute that assure that you're being compliant? Absolutely. So, I mean... Any trade that we do, and this is regardless of whether being with the market or uh, with uh, uh, internal crossings, need to go to uh, pre-trade compliance. Uh, so that needs to be sort of checked before we execute on any trade. Uh, then on these uh, internal crossings, uh, effectively what we do is that we use a third party uh, uh, trading platform to uh, do the trade. So the, the counterparts are actually uh, a verified neutral uh, third-party counterpart, which is uh, intermediating, intermediating uh, in between uh, the, the, uh, the funds. 
And also they uh, make sure through third party and independent pricing providers that this is executed at a mid-pricing uh, level. And obviously documented electronically if you're going through an MTF. Obviously, yes. Perfect. So I think you, you've mentioned earlier uh, South Africa and the risks there, and of course the risks in, in my home country, the United States. But geographically and sector-wise, you know, where are you currently placed? Because I think a lot of people might be afraid you have some like hidden, you know, let's say Chinese regional real estate companies hiding in there for alpha, which I know is not the case. So can you explain a little bit how you do your sector uh, breakdown and perhaps some of the areas where you're, you're long geographically? Yes, sure. So um, I guess it's important to have that classification here as well. So broadly speaking, uh, we uh, prioritize bullet bonds. So I guess that's a starting point, right? So the um, what we look at are bonds with uh, duration uh, of less than three years uh, and then targeting uh, 1.5 years of average duration for the mm. portfolio. And uh, I mean, ideally, what we would have is a very even sort of uh, uh, maturity profile where we have equal uh, installments every month uh, in order to sort of have uh, a, a smooth reinvestment profile as, as possible for, for the strategy, which again would uh, lower the risks for, for our investors. Um, so uh, I guess sector-wise, uh, this means that we invest very broadly into uh, the different sectors. And again, going back to my starting comment, that this was actually one of the prerequisites for us actually launching the strategy mm -hmm. that we could make a, a diversified credit portfolio. Um, so we have uh, probably 15, 20% uh, in government or government related uh, uh, credit issuers. Uh, this could be the sovereign itself or, or sovereign uh, guaranteed uh, uh, issuance. And then we have a just shy of 20% uh, in, uh, in emerging market banks. Now, this varies from uh, the uh, uh, higher rated uh, banks to, to, say, in the uh, double B space or even single B space uh, in, in some cases. But what's important here is that it's just senior debt that, uh, that uh, we okay. invest into. So no capital structures. The only cases where we would do uh, an exemption here would be if we have a tier two paper, which is called. Uh, then we could take on that risk uh, from the call date up until the settlement date. Sure. In some cases, we do see some investors wanting to get rid of such risk because it doesn't pay them adequately, whatever. But where for us, it's actually a meaningful uh, carry exposure to hold in those uh, weeks uh, up until we get the, the money back. Um, but we don't uh, engage with the risk of extension risk in, say, tier one paper and stuff like that. So that's not uh, the, uh, the game point. that that we're, that we're playing here. Um, and I, I think in general, it's also important to say that while we do invest into callable paper, uh, we do keep a close eye on the negative convexity and we keep that at a very uh, minim uh, needed min minimum, I'd say, uh, exposure to that, only if we do find that it makes sense for the overall portfolio. So we don't, as we had with the rising rates, we didn't see our duration gapping up at any point mm -hmm. because we had this under control on, on the negative convexity. And what about uh, the geographical location? You mentioned that you have uh, banks. Where where were some of the uh, the locations of these uh, the domicile? So the domicile, I mean, could be in the Middle East. So we have some uh, UAE banks uh, here. We have some uh, banks in Eastern Europe. Uh, we have seen a lot of issuance in the MREL space, where 
we have seen some of the leading banks being uh, quote-unquote forced to issue at levels they didn't really like but that they had to do in order to comply with this regulation so we have found this to be a very compelling area for us uh, lately uh, whereas um, in Asia, we are not really exposed to the Chinese banks. I mean, China in general is an area which we, uh, given this geopolitical battle between the U.S. and China, we think that will continue. We think that China uh, uh, will be still uh, under pressure structurally. Uh, that's not an area where we have much exposure. So among the countries where we do have the most exposure would be India, India, uh, particularly on the renewable uh, sector, that's uh, an area we like a lot. It's uh, sort of contracted cash flow issuing entities that we uh, that we uh, have invested into, but also places which benefit from the nearshoring coming out of the sort of China-U.S. Uh, sort of hegemonic yeah. uh, battle, uh, uh, and that would be places like Indonesia, Mexico, uh, even Romania, Turkey, benefiting uh, from from that situation. Listen, Christian, I think this has been um, it's been exciting for me. Every time I sit down with you, uh, I, I learn something new, and it's it's very nice. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to explain. And I think if any of our listeners want to know more, please feel free to contact us at podcast at bankinvest.dk. Your feedback is always warmly welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Brett. And uh, everyone, have a nice day.